And good evening, everyone, or good morning, or good afternoon, whatever the case may be on this rotating globe. Welcome to another edition of The Other Side of Midnight, where it used to be about this time of night almost anything could happen, and usually did. And now, of course, as we've been saying for months, going on years, it's happening 24-7. I mean, just look at the news, if you can stand it. Um, I want to get to a couple of things tonight before we launch into background for my uh, really intriguing guest. I've been looking forward to this for many days now when I knew it was a possibility because it touches a subject near and dear to my heart. I'm so tired of healing, healing, huh? I'll do that again. I'm so tired of hearing. I'm thinking of healing because, you know, Robin and all this death and destruction out there. I'm I'm, I'm I'm so tired of hearing about aliens, alien, aliens when it comes to, you know, ancient archaeology that is obviously not, quote, primitive. And given the fact that for the last several decades we've been looking at extraordinarily ancient, high technology all over the solar system, uh, despite the fact that the mainstream is still being stubbornly resistant to that idea. I mean, the images are just obvious if you just know how to look. Just have to look. It's really simple. It's citizen science at its most basic. Just look at what they're sending back. For instance, uh, on last night's show, we had a couple of images from the movie that NASA conducted via remote control uh, with the OSIRIS-REx spacecraft as it took a sample from the surface of uh, this thousand foot wide asteroid in a very eroded octahedral geometry called Bennu. You know, Bennu, Osiris Rex, kind of get the whole Egyptian ritual thing yet? Really? Really? Yet? Anyway, so they took a sample, they took this video, and when they set the little collector head about one foot across on an extended robot arm, below the spacecraft, and they lower the orbit of this spacecraft moving around Bennu to where it would precisely hit a 25-foot um, circle. I mean, that's that's incredible aiming by remote control 200 and some million miles away. Anyway, they, they, they carried out this mission, and they had to puff nitrogen out of the collector head to stir up the rubble so it would fly up in the one one hundred thousandths gravity field of Bennu compared to Earth. And then they would collect, you know, a lot of the junk and rubble and dust and then pack it up and then we'll, they will send it home in the next uh, year and a half. Anyway, they did that. And then they took photographs during this process. And you can see all kinds of really intriguing details like the fact that the dust is pitch black carbon dust. It's like in the bottom of the last coal bunker in the Titanic before they hit the iceberg. It's pitch black coal in incredibly tiny, finely divided, you know, uh, samples. And it's really elegant to watch how it interacts with the sunlight in the pictures. But as this rubble underneath the spacecraft is, is turned up by the nitrogen burst, you can see that all this junk all this bits and pieces, these shards, these little things you think of as rocks or pebbles or something like that, they seem to be mechanical. You can see like little circuits and wires and nuts and bolts. I mean, it's, it's, the, it's the most amazing junkyard. It's a mechanical junkyard. It's not pulverized rock. It's something totally, totally alien. Remember uh, Moonraker, which was one of the Bond films? That's not one that the, the Connery uh, starred in. That was uh, Roger, what's his name? Um, the reason at the top of the show tonight I have another article on Sean Connery is because when you, when you look at his life, where he came from, and where he ended up in his craft, in his profession... It's a profoundly encouraging story. And boy, do we need profoundly encouraging stories right now. So 
I've got another article up there tonight about Sean Connery. Take a look, read it, kind of internalize it. It's it's a it's a ray of hope in a very dark field. Item number two of Radio with Pictures, and for all our new listeners, let me tell you how to get there again. You go to the other side of midnight.com, that's our URL. Click on the, tonight's banner, which says uh, it's not aliens, it's us with Jared Murphy. A gorgeous sunset image of uh, Giza there. Really, really makes it feel so ancient. Anyway, yeah, that will take you to the guest page. Underneath there are fast links. Click on mine. That takes you down to my items. Number one is the uh, new uh, Sean Connery story. He died a couple of days ago, which is why we're doing this. Number two is the graph I've been showing for the last couple of weeks. Um, this is this daily COVID death chart out of the European CDC, which shows the daily number of cases of people who have died of COVID all over the world. Something like 188 countries are reporting to the centralized data networks and the European CDC then collects the state and publishes it uh, once about every 24 hours. Anyway, if, if, if you click on that, it makes it bigger. But you can see even without clicking on it, the chart, the graph of daily deaths has this incredibly precise rhythmic rising and falling, rising and falling, irrespective of the number of people dying on any particular day. It has a frequency of exactly seven days, one week. But it's not correlated with the calendar week, which is really interesting, really important. Then item number three is the link to the CDC in Europe, where you can actually do this for yourself. There's an interactive chart that will open up when you click on that link, and you can move the cursor back and forth, and you can actually add countries. And you can see, compared to the world daily death toll, you can correlate individual countries like Sweden or Italy or Brazil or Mexico or, you know, um, outer uh, Mongolia, whatever. And you can use that cursor to line up the dates and the peaks and valleys in the charts. And you'll see that this, this extraordinary synchronization of deaths more or less rising and falling in this extraordinary seven-day periodicity, seven spins relative to the sun, seven solar days geometrically uh, of this planet, the death counts are either at a peak or they're at a valley. And they progress forward rigorously. They even reset when they get a day or two out of synchronization. Like something outside is forcing people en masse all over the planet from COVID-19 to die or on some days, not to die as much. I mean, it's bizarre. And the other thing we discovered, which I'll get to momentarily, is that if you take uh, that CDC website and you look for the number of cases, and then you compare those two charts side by side, you'll see that, again, all over the world, and in most countries that have been reporting, the daily rise and fall of the number of cases. Remember, this is just people who the tests, the PCR or the Abbott or whatever, are detecting as being positive for the COVID-19 virus. That set of curves mirrors, rises and falls in synchronization with the rising and falling death count. And both of these, by any science that we know, is impossible. The second even more than kind of like the first. Because the second means, and I didn't probably explain this very well last night, the second means that if you're in your car and you're driving um, somewhere and you happen to pass one of these stations where they're doing tests and you pull in so you can find out whether you have the virus, depending upon which day you drive in, let me repeat that. Depending upon which day you drive in, your test may become positive or negative, irrespective of whether you 
have the virus. I mean, this is astonishing. And again, this is not from one source. This is being reported from all over the planet. Hundreds of countries, 188 countries are reporting through this uh, European system. So something is driving the chemistry that is binding the little proteins on the coronavirus, you know, shell with the appropriate proteins in the test much more efficiently on some days than on other days. Now, we are always taught, I was always taught, everybody who teaches, you know, who learns chemistry or physics or medicine or whatever, is taught that the laws of science are constants, meaning they always work. They always are functioning. Whether you do it at Thursday during an eclipse or Friday during, uh, uh, you know, Hanukkah, or, you know, on July 4th, or whenever you do some test in a laboratory, so the canonical scientific wisdom goes, you will get the same results. What the COVID-19 tests are showing us, and again, not restricted to any one country, any one institution, any one medical association. What they're showing us worldwide is that if you test on Thursday for COVID-19 and it's negative, if they test you on Friday, it could be positive. And the only thing that changed in between those two days is that the chemistry for detection of the virus changed enough so it was picked up and amplified by the PCR test. And no science we think we know allows for that. Chemical reactions, nuclear reactions, all kinds of physics and interactions of material science and chemistry are supposed to be immutable. They work every day of the week. doesn't matter whether it's daytime or nighttime or during an eclipse or, you know, on, on Hanukkah, they should work. And what, for the first time, remember, we're looking at the globe for the first time with enough resources to see this kind of astonishing, anomalous phenomenon. The first time we're looking at it, we find out that, oh my God, the same chemistry test I'd perform on Monday will not give me the same results on Thursday. That is such a strike, such a, a uh, an attack at the heart of the um, uh, scientific process that it literally is beyond belief that anything like that could be going on. But again, take a look at those graphs. Now, item number four. Uh, one of our uh, listeners, and I don't mention names until I'm given specific permission, so I'll just use his pen name, Leo, sent me uh, a chart from the University of Illinois the other night, and he said, I presume you've seen this. And I wrote back and I said, no, my God, no, I haven't. Thank you. It turns out that there are three scientists, two at the University of Illinois in Chicago, one at the University of Haifa in Israel. And they've seen this over the last several months, and they've actually written a paper, which is in preprint. It has not been peer-reviewed yet. You know, should make that appropriate statement. That's item number four. Click on that. It's called Oscillatory Dynamics in Infectivity and Death Rates of COVID-19. And what they've done is to confirm what I've been telling you on the show for the last couple, three weeks, including the staggering, I mean, really staggering development that when you, you know, try to take these tests for COVID-19, some days they'll work and other days they won't. And that says to me, this is about the torsion feel. It's about the geometry of this virus. It's about its design. It's about what it's supposed to do. It's giving us a CAT scan of a stunning physical reality that doctors and chemists and physicists have not wanted to admit, which is that physical constants are not constant. And now in our model, as the physics, the background field of the solar system is changing, those disparities between various chemical combinations and reactions are dependent on geometry of the Earth relative to the Sun orbiting our star, which is showing up in the seven-day rhythmic death counts as a totally separate marker that something bizarre scientifically is going on, which is as good a place as any to introduce my guest tonight. 
because uh, we're going to be talking about bizarre science. I mean, really bizarre science. Jared Murphy was born in Frankfurt, Germany. He's a climber, an explorer, a self-experimenter. That's the citizen scientist part. He is an historical remodeler and restoration expert working with engineers and structural engineers for over 20 years making ancient megalithic structures as a point of natural interest. Jared has recently spent a month in South Africa looking for our ancient past in lost massive ancient societies whose ruins forever lay thousands of miles around eastern South Africa. There's so much more to Jared, and what we're going to do is we're going to kind of short-circuit the bio. You can go and read the rest of the bio on the other side of midnight. But what I want to do is to bring him on and introduce him to our audience. Jared, welcome to the other side. Oh, it's so nice to be on. Thanks for having me. I must say, you know, of all the guests I've had on, you know, the first thing I usually ask guests is, well, how did you get into this? And I try to take clues from you know, their written bios or things that their publisher have prepared. I got to say with you, it's kind of like a blank slate. Jared, when did you look around and say, wait a minute, the world is not the way we're being told? You know, it's interesting. I I couldn't have been more than four or five, and I was fascinated by dinosaurs and archaeology, even when I was four and five years old. And... You know, the next thing that came along was Star Wars. So I had a lot of decisions to make in the 70s, if that dates me at all. And I was uh, I was about to write a nonfiction. I, it wasn't nonfiction. It was going to be fiction because I keep up with quantum mechanics and I had a life as a system administrator and work with computers. And I was fascinated by the genomes and what they were finding with just everything you could do and write like in 2008 there was some harvard scientist that wrote a 50,000 word book on just an ounce of dna and i thought that i could write a book about reanimating mummies that would have connections to the far ancient high-tech past because i'd been watching all these shows and i'd been studying all along my whole life it was just a fascination i just couldn't ever put it down that I don't know why I was I was never drawn to the old megalithic stuff. I'm like, oh, that's old. Who cares? I want Indiana Jones. I want to find mummies. I want to find. <laughs> well, wait, wait. How you did know? you make the leap from being four and looking around and saying I'm really intrigued with the past to where you could think of something like, you know, Jurassic Park? Right. And so my my thought was is that well, if I did a fictional story about the militaries around the world grabbing the oldest mummies they could find and reanimating them and despite having a personal Oh, so this was a plot past, line for your novel. Okay, okay. I thought you were Yeah. Okay. It was just a and and I don't get 3 minutes into it. This puts me down a 4-year path of nonstop research and what what happened was it went from a casual interest to no Faster than look, I, I go to write a fictional story with the Paracas of Peru, these elongated skulled mummies. Mm-hmm. Uh, they are uh, in an area that's considered drier than the Antarctica. guys that uh, Brian Forster has been looking at. Yeah, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of his. And the reality is that, well, they're so dry, it's drier than the Arctic because you know that's a wet desert because it's so dry. But in this Nazca area in Peru, it's so dry that there are naturally. Per- preserved elongated skulled humans at least 9000 years old and that's not from Brian's work that's established that's mainstream academia and I'm like okay well that's interesting well what if we start with a mummy like that and it took me about one day of research to come across Colonel Percy Fawcett mm. who was yeah played by Brad Pitt in the uh, I think it's called the Lost World of Z and you know he went looking for the what he called the you know city of z or it was just going to be like machu picchu he was going to find this city and of course colonel percy fawcett had done engineering in the amazon basin had been all over for the british government had done work in the field somehow i don't get it how land surveyors can literally traverse the world that we don't know and they always come back alive is that not well most of them do yeah there are notable exceptions fawcett i think was one of them Yeah, and so Fawcett, in his later, in his adventure period, wanted to come back and 
bring his son and go look for the lost world of Z. And so two minutes, well, a couple of days into my research, I end up finding, not having known anything about Colonel Percy Fawcett, I find a, sh- I find a show and uh, they're going to go follow his footsteps through the Amazon and they start at the banks of uh, a town and they say, this is called Terra Preta. It's an engineered soil. And they're standing in front of a, a, a bank that's about 12 to 15 feet deep. And they said, well, we've all pretty much looked at this. Well, pretty much we're sure that there's an area the size of, well, like two Spains. And uh, soil scientists have been looking at it for 100 years. It's a super mystery. We don't know how to make it. Uh, isn't that interesting? Let's go look for Colonel Percy Fawcett in this village. And I stopped and I went, hold on. There's an engineered soil that can uh, later I find out can it it puts me down this path where I'm like we're, Wait, we're, it's we're not talking just, ordinary dirt just stuff lying around on the ground. Yeah, this in, is not in, a sexy mummy in the in the this, Amazon basin, right? Uh, yeah, not just laying around. It's like it's it's like the uh, it's like the it's it's bigger than the area twice the size of Spain or all of Great Britain and Ireland. You know, you could. Buying the so, whole area. So this soil has a particular composition, organics, chemistry, pH, yes. all of that. Yeah. And it, it's Biotra. lying underfoot. And how deep is it? Oh, it ranges from six feet to 20 feet. And that's just from what they can tell. And what's really interesting is the identical recipe. Just in the case of the Brazilian term, the Portuguese term, terra preta, it's in Northern Africa and it's in Australia. The same chemistry, the same yes. super soil. Yeah. Kind of like and something you'd go to, uh, to uh, you know, Potsaras and pay, you know, $100 a bag for. Ironically, there is a black market for this soil and it's also in Ukraine, it's in Siberia, it's in North America, it's in Minnesota, it's in Canada. Well, wait, it's you mean there are vast areas of real estate on the earth that has this unique what you said engineered soil and we got to come back to that yep. after the break okay but you say it's not just found in in the amazon rainforest it's found other places on earth right yep to very great depths right uh-huh so why is there a black market doesn't sound like uh, it's, it's it's in it's short exactly supply what you said they sell they sell it as potting soil they sell it you can get it for yeah but why would there base? have to be a black market i mean you know, there are nations that have a corner on, for instance, rare earths. China's one. They simply mine yeah. the rare earths and sell it to the rest of the world. So why aren't these countries, like, let's say, Brazil, which has, you said, two areas of Spain equivalent? Yes, and what the, they know and, of. And, and, and down 10, 20 feet. That's a lot of soil. Yeah. You know, so why don't they make it into a market and sell it? Why is it a black market item? That's what I don't get. Well, one of the reasons I think it's like anytime you go in and out of a country, you're not supposed to bring in organics to, uh, you know, eradicate either insects or bacteria or biology of some kind. So you're not supposed to bring the soil different places. So I think there's just a practical, uh, non-mysterious reason why they can't export the soil. Hmm. Which is ironic, considering all the other products you're so bringing. So why up. isn't there a vigorous market within country, like in in Brazil? Yeah, so there is something. So what what terra preta is, and chernozems, which is what the soils called through like the Ukraine and Siberia and into America and Canada, it's a biochar, and there are modern. Wait, wait, mimics. it's a what? But it's called biochar. And so it's a recipe, like you said. It's like baking a cake. You have to have a certain set of ingredients that have to be engineered in order to create biochar, which is what terra preta and chernozems are. Well, so how, how, how do we know it has to be engineered? That's the part I guess I'm so, missing. So soil scientists, people who are into farming, um, I'm in Minnesota, which is a big farming area. Uh, a lot of techniques, like even things we take for granted now, even like uh, cycling crops. We understood that the soil itself, and, and this answers a couple of your questions about the richness of the soil. One of the things they are always looking for is how do you grow nutrient-rich food? And one of the things when terra preta was found by people who are actually soil scientists – when they started looking at, oh, this is a really rich soil and it has some interesting properties, it tends to maintain its vigor where uh, we rotate crops 
and we of course add fertilizers in. Terra Preta seems to withstand thousands of years of use. It tends to also filter carbon dioxide, uh, fertilizers, and heavy metals. And it also has piezoelectric properties, so it actually can transmit a current. So there's a lot of weird things about this soil. And specifically, 100 years ago or so, they start looking at it. There's tons of scientific papers on it. And basically, they are trying to mimic it. So in modern biochars, like if you and I want to go open up an apple orchard, there's a certain biochar mix of burned woods. How are, or you, like spelling, a, how are you spelling that word? So biochar, just think uh, biocarbon, so bio, B-A-O, and charcoal, biocharcoal, it's biochar, it's uh So it's is a this a soil which has been burned? Yeah, intentionally, and not just, and mixed, so it's not that the soil's been burned, well, yeah, it has components that have been created using fire, and it and it's not... A bunch of dinosaurs ran around, and then the giant sequoias <laughs> and redwoods started on fire, and yeah. they all collapsed on each other. They yeah. just happened to make it. That's yeah. not what happened. And we know but this from the detailed option. studies going back, you said, what, about 100 years? Oh, yeah, yeah. You could start pulling up scientific journals left, right, and center. So your thesis is, and I don't know whether it's original with you, but we'll find that out in a moment, that this particular soil rather than evolving naturally in various places on the planet, was specifically created and leapt to us by a previous very sophisticated environmental science, i.e. a civilization that understood soil chemistry much more than we do. Is that and correct? to that point, that identical soil, specifically Terra Preta, is found in Africa and Australia. That's just... That's like you could just pull the foundation of the house of cards right here and now. And this is not my theory. This is a real thing, but it's not sexy like pulling out a mummy and a golden monkey statue. <laughs> no, but it's a huge artifact on left on planet Earth covering millions of square miles. Well, I'll give you one more caveat before maybe we take a break. And this is that once you get into the soil itself, why is it – I'm going to ask this question now – why is it that megalithic structures – do not tip left or right. Why are they so flat? What kind of soil, if you're engineering it not only for growing but having piezoelectric properties for communication, what kind of soil compaction and composition would you do as a seismic metamaterial under a megalithic building and who's done those core sample researches? Hmm. Very interesting question. Well, so this is, we kind of started off with a bang. So you started out wanting to do a novel about ancient stuff. And somehow you got sidetracked by soil chemistry and found an artifact kind of so big it's been staring us all in the face for a hundred years, namely that something or someone went around the planet and created a an artifact that literally covers millions of square miles and yet yeah. wherever continent you find it on it's identical because someone followed a recipe this yeah and it's not just a mimic it's almost as if you had the same uh pick your name brand coffee it's as if somebody opened up the same branch of that franchise on three continents mm. and made the identical product okay hold it there my guest this morning is jared murphy he is a citizen scientist. He's a polymath. He is a generalist, one of those kind of people that kind of resonates with uh, my background. And uh, we're talking about ancient possible evidence, signatures, that we are not the first. That in fact, before us on this planet, a very sophisticated high-tech civilization, or maybe more than one, lived here and left us something that would allow us to figure out what it was that they were all doing in this place. Okay, you're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return.
The Other Side of the News is a current and dynamic companion to augment the discussions from The Other Side of Midnight. We investigate, explore, and extrapolate facts to gain better understanding of current affairs and events, and thus... To bring comfort and calm to our wide international audience. It's a spontaneous commentary... Based on well-verified references fed through vigilance and discernment. Our desire, desire is to awaken your imagination with questions. Questions that have not been asked, yet need answering. The other side of the news is a place where you can come and be with us in community. Learning new things, asking questions, getting compelling answers, and interesting viewpoints. It's about curiosity. We present thought-provoking questions to incite your mind, propelling you to see the world in another way. Propelling you to see the world in another way. Clear insights and fresh perspectives on global events. Tune in for a balanced view of the other side of the news. The other side of the news can be heard here on this network, on this channel, on this website, on this URL, every Friday evening, two hours, 7 to 9 p.m. Pacific Time. I warn you, you'll miss it at your own peril. Welcome back, everyone. On this Sunday night, November 1, you realize why this night is really important, right? Why last night was Halloween and tonight's the night. This is the night when the veil between the world, between the dimensions, is supposed to be as thin as possible. Hmm. Okay, Jared, um... Let me see if I get this straight. You have this very interesting, variegated background. You've been a lot of different places. You've poked into all kinds of things. You've experimented. You've looked at ancient archaeology. You started out wanting to write fiction, you know, one of these documentary drama fiction thingies about ancient cultures, and you you wound up tripping over a really planetary-wide mystery, which is... A soil, I mean, something as uh, average as <clears throat> dirt, which has extraordinarily interesting properties, could not be created naturally, and is found in identical chemistry sets, like you bought it at uh, Jackalope, in various parts of the world, like it had been created there specifically for someone. Did I get that roughly right? Yeah, dead on. Yes, okay. you did. Well, that's kind of like amazing. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's one of those things where if you you literally are talking about getting, I mean, at this point, we don't have an elephant in the room. It's turned into a giant blue whale. Well, you can see all this stuff from orbit. Uh, yeah, well, was, it's on well, every continent. And, and again, this is a continent. Everyone kind of takes a snapshot of the ancient past, which drives me nuts and says, okay, well, let's ignore that giant city that I, I, I bring it up in my book, but there's a city that's off of Cuba that was found during gold exploration. They were looking for sunken. Yeah, yeah this was this Canadian this uh, uh, man-wife team. I actually work with them. I talk with them. Um, see, at, right. I'm trying to remember you're, their you're, name. You're, she was the scientist. She was the oceanographer. 
he was more into international relations or something, I think. They were yeah, based and, and, in Canada, and they had this contract with Castro to basically yep. survey stuff, and they found with unmanned submersibles 2,500 feet down, that's half a mile in that strait yeah. between Cuba and Mexico, they found a set of geometric Egyptian-looking or Teotihuacan-looking ruins. Yeah, and the only way you can do this is above, uh, it has to be above water, irrelevant to plate tectonics. The only way that that city could have been above water is approximately 50,000 years ago. And if you do a snapshot then, and part of my work, so I'm doing this four years of work, and I had done other research, by the way, uh, over the last years doing Well, other, let me, hang, hang on, uh, let, me, let me back up because I missed a stitch. You started out several years ago wanting to do fiction. And then you got yeah, into this four. bizarre yeah. soil stuff. When did you make the decision? Um, I'm going to tackle real research about ancient history to heck with this fiction stuff. Yeah, I think, well, I had a propensity for it. I'm a huge history fan to begin with. I've, uh, I have a grandfather who was a tank commander in World War II, landed at D-Day and was in a tank to Berlin. And as a child, I became fascinated with first that history, but then I just kept staying on that history course. And actually, my first endeavor to write a book was actually for uh, a period I thought truth is stranger than fiction again. It was actually about international espionage in the Civil War in England, which is actually the reason we have international war tribunals is actually when England and the United States went at each other in 1869. And it was the very first international dispute, the very first Geneva uh, uh, court was b between the United States suing the English for participating and helping the South. And I was, I went for two years again, because uh, once I start researching something, I don't stop. And it's the truth is stranger than fiction. And I was going to write a fictional account of two actual spies in England that one worked for the North, one worked for the South. And I spent two years chasing down how these actual spies one of them is responsible for the CSS Alabama, which is probably the most successful privateering warship in all of known history. But it's not popular to have a southern warship. But that that was <laughs> one of the things that came out of this crazy environment. And I will just research until I find everything out. And so it wasn't a big jump to go from going, well, hey, I'm starting with this idea of genetic memory, of quantum mechanics, uh, dealing with mitochondria, like the idea of uh, intuition and past lives. And or, no, wait, wait, uh, wait, wait. You just leaped into the Twilight Zone. You brought in a whole bunch of other stuff that we haven't talked about. How do oh, we get from the ancient plot of the book for the, oh, for the see, animating the yeah, brachus see, and the mummies? See. And so it wasn't a huge jump to go from your question of doing fiction from the nonfiction of the mechanics of it. In fact, I, I having a propensity and a background to kind of track down the history of uh, a subject. Once I get interested in that particular uh, historical point, I will go down all the rabbit holes. So here I get just a few days of literally just a few days into, I am now making the commitment to write this book. I am going to do the work and I get barely a few days. I come across Colonel Percy Fawcett and I'm thinking Indiana Jones. I'm thinking about the temples. I'm thinking about uh, what the, and then here I am looking at soil and going, how has no one focused on this? And it's an easy mystery to literally walk over on every <laughs> continent. Okay. But care about bad, it. bad puns notwithstanding. Let me turn the question upside down. Why has no one looked at this and said, holy whatever, Batman, this right? this should not exist? No, but it's even more obvious. So for those that have in the past gone to look at, because I... Again, folks, spent... we're just talking about dirt here, except it's yeah. very, very, very special, weird dirt. Smart dirt. Very and a lot dirt. of it. I mean, we're, and, we're talking like dirt, continents the, of dirt. Yeah, because the assumption is like, well, isn't it great? We can grow very nutritious food. And wow, it looks like it has electromagnetic properties. Like we could maybe use it as a current thing to communicate between buildings. And 
having a background in historical remodeling. So is this, to, is, is this the natural reaction of academia when they've been confronted by all these mysteries of the ancient coming off their kind of Victorian prudish, you know, training that life is unending progress from the primeval swamp to the outer stars, that kind of, uh, uh, what was that, the famous movie of, of things to come. And in that model, when they look at ancient stuff, it's got to be ancient and primitive because those guys were much stupider than we are. We're the great Victorian, you know, Enlightenment scientists. Were, were, were they trapped, was science trapped in this idea that if it's that old and that pervasive, it's got to be natural? I, I think it's a matter. Yes, I think it's that, and uh, I I really have to quote Michael Cremo: "If the facts don't fit the theories, throw out the facts." <laughs> well, yeah, but and, a lot of and, science and does not do that anymore. You know, you and I are on computers and high technology, and we're using satellite signals. It, where is it? Name me another. Even uh, the head of tech of uh, medicine. How is it that we are holding? the 150, 120-year-old theories as the filter that we start with when it comes to archaeology and our history. It's ludicrous. Well, I mean, let's, let's, let's kind of back up and look at the view from 30,000 feet. I got intrigued with the whole idea of ancient terrestrial history when I found things in the rest of the solar system that did not belong that either required that aliens had come to the solar system and set up housekeeping with us kind of like a sideshow, not even part of the main action, or there was something radically wrong with our portrayal of human history, in which case in the preceding yawning gap of hundreds of thousands or even millions of years, the human race could have risen and fallen, you know, over a dozen times to an incredible plateau of technological sophistication, and then it all simply went away. And we keep reclimbing the, the, the ladder to the stars endlessly over and over and over again. Then I started looking at these background cosmic cycles, and when I realized there was a modulating physics, it looked like the physics was modulating human consciousness so there are vast periods on Earth where we're really dumb, like now. I mean, look around. We look like we're smart. No, we're killing the planet. That's really dumb. And then there are epochs when we're incredibly brilliant. But do those epochs leave what we would recognize as technology? Or do we literally transmute ourselves into a species that does not require physical instrumentality, quoting that great line, from Forbidden Planet to, to, to affect the world, but we literally, because the physics is in tune, can use our minds, our consciousness to affect change. And then we get to the dumb part of the cycle and we go back to physical technology. And in one of those parts of the cycle, somebody said, a lot of people are gonna really need to eat. Let's create something that will sustain them through the dumb periods. And that's where the soil has come from. I think that there's everything you said is dead on. We have epochs of rise and falls of from the minute, even those paleoanthropologists, the minute they started looking, we were finding things that did not line up. And I think a very seminal work on that is forbidden archaeology where there's no going around it. There is proof <laughs> of anatomically correct humans not falling in line with the... Uh, so that's the very 50,000-foot view that we're talking about is you have to start with the fact that the story you were told about everyone banging rocks together 50,000 years ago is not true. We have tribes on Earth right now that bang rocks together, and they live very smartly, simply, but they, they're around, and we don't go run and get them out of the Arctic or out of the jungle or out of the desert and say, well, you don't have to do this anymore. They, they live the way they do, and they live simultaneously, and if everything was to be wiped out, there's your eolus and your neolus, your stone tools, your simple, uh, possibly petrified wood walking sticks eventually but we're, so, we're so talking wait, wait, wait. you're saying if we look back at the past and we say well wait a minute if there was a high-tech civilization in our past we'd see it 
and all we see is the primitive stuff, well, the answer, of course, is the high-tech stuff is very fragile, and it goes away very quickly. The stuff made and of that rocks. We don't and then we'll, we'll never yeah, see I, it. Exactly. Yeah, well, and that, and we're not recognizing it. We're, we're in safe mode, like a computer that's just taking a giant dump. We're in safe mode. It can do basic things. Why, wait, wait, when you like, say we, we have this huge wait, brain. When you say we, do you mean us culturally or physically or what? As a, that 10 to 14% consciousness, they say, well, it looks like we're only 10 to 14% conscious, but we have abilities like synesthesia, or we can, we have every now and then we have these. Uh, moments where either through a drug or a meditation, we connect back to some of these higher functions or super, we're called, you know, we have people right now we call superhuman. And so we're connecting back to abilities that you and I don't recognize as technology because they're literally built into the genetics that then physically connect us to the earth when we're walking on it because we engineered and terraformed the planet to such a height of technology, mm. you didn't need a cell phone. You likely connected directly with another well, person. Well, we have a we have an historical record of these periods. They're called in the Vedic tradition the Vedic cycles, the Tetra Yuga, yes. <clears throat> the Kali Yuga, which is the one we're in now, the lowest frequency, and then the cycle begins over again, and you develop these godlike abilities. Um, I've always thought that it was because of the changing background physics. You know, genetically, there are times when you can turn on the radio and get a signal, but if there's no, if 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 your receiver is is broken, when you turn it on, nothing's going to happen. And during parts of this twenty-six thousand-year cyclic period, this processional cycle, humans get very, very, very dumb. And then the other parts of the cycle, they're they're incredible receivers, and they're receiving all kinds of exotic information, and they literally, I believe can function by mind over matter. I know it sounds like magic, but it, it, I, I think there's evidence that we could spend some time talking about that the real ultimate high technology does not leave vacuum tubes and circuits and uh, you know uh, flying machines uh, in pieces on the ground. Exactly. And there are a lot of rabbit holes because those are all true statements because we have that whip, the placebo effect. I mean, it actually works you can cure yourself heal your own body it's proven in scientific settings but that part of that uh, rise and fall in four years of research one of the hardest things is to break through the there's these filters whether it's alternative researchers or whether it's mainstream academia there are a couple things they do they dig up five percent of a site and then they say well here's a hundred percent of what was going on well you guys just said it was the first site ever and you just said it wasn't supposed to be there. And now you know everything about the society. And then if you don't, every single thing they did had to do with a star map and everything was about worshiping. I got tired of my first college oh, class. Oh, yeah, you're obviously talking about Gobekli Tepe. Yeah, we we dug up 5%. <laughs> How could I know that you were talking about Gobekli Tepe? Let's yeah. see, 5% of it dug up. It's all about the stars. Uh, we know everything about it, although no, there's six it's tepes. No, a time capsule. <laughs> Somebody yeah. deliberately buried it for us. Yeah, just, just for – that's the other thing. Uh, everything gets mystified. So uh, in the alternative world, there's a template that's being applied to every site also. It's everything's sacred and everything is – everything's about the stars you can see in the sky. Well, guess what? A high-tech society that has abandoned or has been forced through cataclysm or war, they have left a site that was then taken over by dynastic people, manipulated, developed – changed repaired even in original high-tech time are we talking and about now, egypt well also egypt but like at gobekli tepe there's like river rock between giant megalithic pillars and so just the punchline on, on when you get the artistic interpretation of gobekli tepe they could build giant 25 foot tall to some of the points of the five percent they've dug up very complex structures and then there is uh, only the ability to cut whole logs and make a thatched roof for loincloth people. Hmm. That you know that the the picture you're given. So we dig up five percent of the site, and as we start labeling, it's always the temple of the moon, the temple of the sun, the <laughs> temple of fill in the blank, and you've now mystified and put a filter on something that we're not understanding. 
Okay, we're kind of jumping around here. I want to go back to four years ago, give or take, you start a novel. You wanted to always be a novelist. Apparently, John Steinbeck was one of your childhood heroes. Anyway, so you want to do a novel. You want to do it about ancient antiquity, the earth. You, you launched into your project, started doing research. You find this stuff about the soil. When did you decide novel be damned, truth is more exciting than fiction? Oh, that it, it the minute I saw the minute I started understanding exactly what terra preta and, and chernosums and engineered soils were. By the way, what does that term translate to? Terra preta. Black earth, black soil. It's just black earth. It's Portuguese. And okay. uh, the other one was I think identified by Eastern Europeans. I mean it's I I don't know what the entomology of the word is or uh chernosums are just the uh from Siberia to Eastern Europe and Canada through North America. They're they're called chernosums. But it's uh the it's similar chemistry, it's artificial, and the idea that I was going to continue down that road of fiction when truth was so bizarre. <laughs> uh, I I couldn't stop. And again, that background of doing historical remodeling and restoration, it did not take long for what me to. What does that mean? Ident- historical modeling and restoration. I wonder. So if that. you have a hundred and twenty year old home that's kind of lopsided and you want to put a brand new kitchen in it because you just saw it oh, on TV. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. I've been through many of those. Yes. Okay. Uh, well, I'm fairly good at it. I can mix and match all your old trim and go to the local 100-year-old lumber I'll store. I'll bet and get I could it. beat your experience. We redid a house once when we were growing up, my you know, parents and uh, three other kids. We They wanted to remodel this house so they could basically then sell it to pay for our college education. And we had random width boards that were almost 200 years old that were sagging. They had to be hydraulically propped up from the basement underneath, and when they were sanded, and I know because I was one of the ones working the sander, they actually <laughs> bled pine pitch. It, there, there's so much beauty and fulfillment in restoring something, and also a lot of tomfoolery and shenanigans. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I know about <laughs> restoration. Um, well, you, you know how we build a house with a foundation wall? Yeah, It's just on the outside. What you know, like when we build a home, we dig a foundation. Some places don't have basements. I'm in an area where we have basements, but when you build a foundation to a home, you just dig a hole and you're supposed to pre compact the soil, which almost no contractor does to 90%. But you don't just pre compact the soil, you dig a hole, you pre compact the dirt or sand or mud, and then you put in class five gravel, which is for most people every dirt road in the country. And then you pre compact that down, like you maybe start with a foot of it, and you pack it, pack it, pack it down with a little tamper that's about 80 pounds, it's gas driven. But then you're supposed to either lay cinder blocks or pour concrete with rebar. And that's how you make a foundation for a modern building. Well, that's like just three different types or four different types of material. This engineered soil and its properties and like the Nazca lines led me to uh, very quickly comprehend that these megalithic structures, that even if they're dynastic, even if we suspect that they're thousands, tens of thousands of years old, but like that city off of Cuba, what if the foundation, the core sampling shows that the foundational structure of pyramids, of giant megalithic platforms, what if they're pre-compacted to 100%? What if they're pre-compacted with 10 different layers? What if just like some of the sites that there are uh, giant polygonal cymatic uh, megalithic blocks that are 12, 10, 15, 30-sided and hundreds of tons down to five tons down to small that are transported a 1,000 miles. What if the very foundational material, and it's called seismic metastructures. That's what is the study and science of creating things that don't fall down during earthquakes, and it starts with the soil that's around Mm. the building and under the building. So you're getting into the problem of the uh, what they used to call the World Series Earthquake. And I think October of 89, when the Marina District in San Francisco, because it was all basically just landfill and not compacted, the danger, the architectural you know, collapses and all that was the most uh, egregious there because it was unconsolidated soil. 
you're saying that there's evidence in ancient, ancient cultures of a very sophisticated anti-earthquake precaution of making multiple layers of different compaction soil. So when you build a building, the foundations literally will not shake apart. I'm telling you that they've established that in the, in the polygonal blocking, but I'm saying that to the best of my knowledge to this day, from editing to book launch, I am, I think, the first person to, and I didn't want to be the first person, but I'm actually stating that I do not, to any of the research I've seen, know of anyone that has actually done a core sample to whatever depths to determine the layering, the compaction level, and the components right down to the nanocrystal of what comprises a megalithic wall that literally hasn't budged, like the Great Pyramid has not budged off-level. off They say it's maybe a half-inch off-level, but what is the composition of the foundational structure where it's not just on a four-sided house where it's the exterior? How is it that you have a megalithic wall that's 12 feet thick, like Baalbek with... 900 ton stones how is it that that foundation has not faltered left right or center irrelevant to flooding irrelevant to natural and or cataclysm and or weaponized uh ancient high technology like vedic literature states uh, despite all of it they had the foresight to not only engineer and terraform the planet with soil for growing and filtering air and etc but we don't have core samples to determine, which I'm looking to change as we speak. I'm looking to do that research right now, live in the field. But there is no study of the foundational material of these megalithic really? structures. Really? Like guys like uh, Flinders Petrie didn't do this? No, yeah. So Flinders is a huge deal because we all know that he is the one during the Industrial Revolution who's looking at these core samples like Christopher Dunn, who brought up everyone. Uh, for those familiar, Flinders Petrie is considered a great Egyptologist in that he was not afraid to actually point out that there are core drills uh, as if someone walked up with a something a technology we do not have this day that can run 500 times faster than any drill that we have and literally like go up to a giant hard piece of quartzite something that copper tools could never accomplish and drill a hole uh four inches wide six inches wide three inches wide and dig it for uh depth uh as best we know we don't even know the limit of the depth but 12 feet 15 feet through whole pieces of large pieces of granite and basalt and okay, well, hold it there fine. hold it there we're at the top of the hour my guest this morning is jared murphy citizen scientists author and obviously someone with an extensive background in construction and he raises a very interesting point when we're looking at all these massive ancient megalithic structures why hasn't archaeology the academics why haven't they done a normal building assessment, which is to do a core sample and see if the soil underneath the structure has been carefully and engineeringly prepared. That would tell us a lot about sophistication of the planners in terms of the environment where the structure was assembled. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. Thanks for listening to this exciting first hour. Now, the second and third hour of the show is available to Club 19.5 members only. Please support the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 and join our very interesting community. To do that, please visit the website, theothersideofmidnight.com, and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the left-hand column. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350-plus shows that we have done. Now, recent Club 19.5 member archive recording have the commercials removed, and the sound quality has been enhanced. You'll also receive a dedicated private podcast feed that contains these enhanced show recordings. And 
you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the archive if you prefer. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll also be the first to preview our new videos and reports. We'll be adding exclusive new features to Club 19.5 as we go forward, and boy, have we got some amazing things to tell you about in the coming weeks. So please support the show and don't miss all the exciting new things we have planned. I want to thank all our Club 19.5 members because without your guys' support, this show would not be on the air. Please help us continue growing the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 today. And when I say we really need you, we really need you. Over and out. <laughs>